we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel, we come to the end of Luke's record of Jesus' sermon on the plain in chapter 6, to which I invite you to turn your attention with me. Luke chapter 6, we'll pick up at verse 46. Let Let me remind you that Jesus has had much to say to us in this sermon, Uh, Much that is by way of instruction, much by way of direct commandment. Love your enemies and do good as you wish that others do to you, would do to you, so do to them. Be merciful, judge not, forgive, and just plain give. And give. Now, as he ends his sermon, Jesus draws on a couple of metaphors. One we considered last week, the agronomical metaphor, namely trees and fruit. Jesus wants us to bear fruit. And the fruit we bear will depend on what kind of heart we have, and what kind of heart we have will depend on whether or not the Holy Spirit resides there. So we finished last week by throwing ourselves on the grace of God and dependence upon Him to give us good hearts so that the overflow of our hearts would also be good, good in word and in deed. And that was a fine way to finish, of course. All is dependent upon grace. It is all of grace. But there's another side to the Christian life, too. There's responsibility. There's the responsibility that we as Christians bear to live as becomes the followers of Christ. There is the duty, the obedience, the putting into practice the commandments of King Jesus. Certainly that was present in the agronomical metaphor, we must bear fruit. Here with another metaphor, an architectural one. Jesus himself makes that point even more plainly. If the last metaphor he used uh, found us all trees, this one finds us all builders of houses, houses that will either stand or fall. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we want houses that will stand. So we pray that you will give us grace to desire it even more as we hear your voice speak to us and learn how it is that we may build houses that will stand when the storm comes blowing into our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Those last words of his sermon, the ruin of that house was great, are meant to leave in us a deep sense of the gravity of the situation. That last word, great, is also for emphasis the last word in the Greek. There is a sobering emphasis laid on this warning with which Jesus finishes his sermon that we must not miss. There is much at stake here. So much. So much. Not only for this life, but for the life to come. But what is the issue? You know, for whom will the ruin be great? Whose house is it that's so easily demolished? And how can a man or woman, boy or, or girl, avert such disaster in their lives? Well, look at the scene. Many people are gathering around Jesus, have gathered. They, they wanted to hear what he had to say. Many loved to hear him preach. They loved his teachings, his doctrines, his words. Jesus knew that. He understand that many people were there for no good reason beyond their enjoyment of religious talk. They liked good preaching. Many of them were enthusiastic listeners. Why, they even called him Lord. And not only Lord, but Lord, Lord, they called him. They ascribed him these terms of respect and even reverence with their lips. Ah, there's the rub. It is their lips. But there it stops. They loved, as we say sometimes, to pay lip service. Maybe they could even talk up a storm about theology, carry on conversations for hours about sanctification and justification and even regeneration. They could mimic the words that Jesus said with their own lips, but that's as far as they took it. So many of them, at least. Not all of them. Some were not merely hearers of Jesus' words and lip servants. They took it further. They heard And they did. In other words, they obeyed what Jesus said. They were to put Jesus' teaching into practice in their lives. You see, there's a vast difference, a huge difference, between hearing Jesus' words and doing them. Those who not only heard, but did what he commanded. Jesus compared here to a man who was building a house who dug deep in the ground and laid his foundation on the rock. And the result of his actions, of putting the words of Jesus into practice, 
Not just shaking his head in agreement, not just saying, Lord, Lord, not just calling himself a Christian, but actually obeying Jesus' commandments. I say the results in Jesus' metaphor are clearly to be seen when the floods come. We usually think of Palestine as a dry and arid place. And if I understand correctly, it is for a good portion of the year. But there are also times when great storms roll in and break out. And there is a deluge of rainwater in places that were at one moment dry wadis turn the next into rushing rivers. What then? For the man who had not merely heard Jesus, but had done what he said, who, in other words, dug deeply and laid his foundation on the rock, when the floods came, when the streams broke against that house, they could not shake it because it had been well built. Those, on the other hand, who merely heard Jesus, yes, maybe, maybe even loved hearing Jesus, but who didn't want to take him any more seriously than that. I didn't want actually to practice what Jesus preached. We're glad for a sermon, but certainly didn't want Jesus interfering with their lives, everyday actual lives. They were, Jesus said, they are like a man who built a house on the ground. Right on top of the ground he built it, no foundation underneath. And the results are equally as clear. When the stream breaks against it, immediately it falls. And the ruin, Jesus adds, the ruin is great. Now this wasn't a thing new. In Jesus' day, nothing new for him to find in his hearers during his earthly ministry. There was already a long and rich, or maybe I should say anemic, history of hearing without doing, even in the church. Some 600 years before Jesus' incarnation, the prophet Ezekiel served the people who came to hear him, who sat before him. Who heard what Ezekiel said, but would not do it. Nor would it end with Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was compelled to write in his wisdom-packed epistle to the church, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The disease continued down through the centuries so that John Bunyan, himself a hearer and doer of the word, and for that very reason jailed for a dozen years of his life, during which he just thought he wrote his immortal Pilgrim's Progress, could write in that same book about a man named Talkative. His Christian and faithful made their way to the celestial city In Bunyan's allegory, they met that man, you might remember, named Talkative, who was always talking about spiritual things, but did not live the Christian life. All talk and, well, you know the rest, no walk. 
Here is what Christian had to say by way of warning to his traveling partner, Faithful. He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of new birth. But he knows only to talk of them. The soul of religion is the practice part. This talkative is not aware of. He thinks that hearing and saying will make a good Christian. And thus he deceiveth his own soul. Just like James said, do not deceive yourselves. Hearing is but as the sowing of seed. Talking is not sufficient to prove that fruit is indeed in the heart and the life. And let us assure ourselves that at the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. The end of the world is compared to our harvest. And you know men at harvest regard nothing but fruit. Not that anything can be accepted that is not of faith. I know that Bunyan just took us back to last week's metaphor of trees and fruit, but the point's the same, and the problem remains the same in the church today as it was in Bunyan's day, and in James's day, and in Jesus' day, and in Ezekiel's. People talk about being Christians. They talk about Christ. They even call him Lord. But all of the talk in the world about Christ does not make you a Christian. A true Christian lives for Christ by faith. Bishop Ryle summed it up well when he wrote obedience. Obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith. And the talk of the lips is worse than useless if it is not accompanied by sanctification in the life. That is, by a holy life. Ryle called this the old and common sin of profession without practice. And Jesus will not have it. He would not have it of those who would be his disciples then, and he will not have it of us now. My brothers and sisters, we cannot, we must not settle for religion that is all talk and no action. We don't want, and at the judgment day, certainly you will not want to have had merely a name to live while you remained dead. A mere form of godliness without its power. Or to put it in Jesus' terms here, you will not want to have built a house on the ground with no foundation when the floods come. You will want to have built your house on the rock. And the rock, Jesus says, is the rock of obedience to his words. Only that kind of life can stand when the judgment comes. And even, for that matter, through the storms of this life. When real afflictions come to you, when real grief and pain 
are visited on you, disappointments and sadnesses come to your home, then it will come clear whether you have built your house on the foundation of Jesus' words or not. The one who obeys Jesus, the one who strives to conform his life, not just his words, but his life to Jesus' commandments when things are well, when there isn't a storm cloud in the sky, will find that when the rains do fall, when the storm comes against them as they will against every one of us, in this sad life, in this sad world, they will find their houses standing. Come wind, come weather. Does that describe you, though? You talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? Do you do the words of Christ in your life, in public when people are looking, and in private when they're not, in the world, and when you're at home with your family? Sounds hard, doesn't it? Digging foundations deeply to the rock. It is. It is. The Christian life is, admittedly, a difficult one. Jesus does not call us to take up our cream puffs. But our crosses... This, I think, is what keeps many people from becoming Christians. They, they know what it requires of them. Several months ago, I sat across a table from a man who was hurting. And I told him about the Lord, and I told him about salvation, and how salvation is a free gift. It's been won by Christ on the cross. He gives it to us as a free gift And he seemed to like that idea a whole lot. For a moment, his face lit up. Uh, But then, just as quickly, it was extinguished. Even more quickly, he remembered, at that instant, his live-in girlfriend. And he knew, almost instinctively, what this all required of him, that he was going to have to repent of his sexual immorality. And it was too much. It was simply too hard. I dare say that the Christian life is a demanding one. But you and I, we must learn to measure that too. It's not as though a life of sin, a life of pursuing whatever worldly pleasures you want at any time does not make its own set of demands too, and by the way, much harsher ones at that. John Adams, our second president, got fed up as a boy with his Latin lessons. None of you know anything about that, do you? And so he told his father, He was going to quit them. No more Latin. His father allowed it. He put his son to work digging a long and deep ditch on their farm. After two days, 
John returned to his vocabulary and his paradigms and his syntax. You see, there's work and there's work. If I have gained any distinction, he said near the end of his life, it has been owing to that two days of labor in that abominable ditch. Compare the hard work, will you, of the Christian life. Compare the difficulties in the Christian life to the grinding drudgery of life without God's blessings. The Christian life is demanding, but it's also full of blessing. It carries its own blessings. Or compare the words of Christ at the end, pronounced over your head, Well done, good and faithful servant, to facing the judgment devoid of the favor of Christ. I tell you, any work you do in the Christian life of putting sins to death, of putting on new obedience, of striving with might and main after a life of holiness in some of all the demands that Christ lays upon you will prove to you to be the most satisfying of labor when the storms hit your life and you find your feet firmly standing on solid rock ground. To say nothing of what it will seem to you on the judgment day when heaven's gates fly open to receive you who not only heard Jesus' words, but did them. You will find, just as he said, his yoke really was easy and his burden light. Don't be afraid, Christians, to take Jesus' warning here with full seriousness to, and to renew, therefore, your resolve to walk the walk, to turn your talk into action. No sacrifice you make to obey your Savior, your Master, will not carry its own compensation in this life and in the next. And very soon, very soon, even the sacrifices you make will not really seem like sacrifices at all. Just the loving response to one who himself loved so much that he remained unsatisfied with talking only, but obeyed his Father in everything, even unto the cross, to save you. William Tid Matson was the son of a prominent man of English politics. And his very able son could have been as well. He could have been famous and wealthy and comfortable. But he was converted to Christ at the age of 20. And he gave up those glittering prospects 
to preach the gospel instead. And what is more, he preached not in the socially acceptable Church of England, but in Methodist and Congregationalist churches. He was a poet as well. In fact, you can find a couple of samples uh, of his poetry in our own Trinity hymnal. When asked about the life that he gave up, his answer was always simply this. No sacrifice. All gain. No sacrifice. All gain. He was a man who didn't have to worry when the storms came into his life. Let them come. Let the storms come. They matter not. Because his own life was built on the solid rock of Christ. He lived and he died doing the will of God, doing the words of Christ. That's the way I want to live and die. That's the way you do too. And God help us, may it not be merely words in pulpit or in pew either. Then we will experience, as Matson did, and put into verse, O blessed life, the heart at rest, when all without tumultuous seems, that trusts a higher will and deems that higher will, not mine, the best. O blessed life, the mind that sees whatever change the years may bring, a mercy still in everything and shining through all mysteries. O life, how blessed, how divine, high life, the earnest of a higher. Savior, fulfill my deep desire and let that blessed life be mine.